Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. If you're reading from a pew Bible, it should be on page 976. Page 976. Last week, we talked about God's grand promise from before the foundation of the world. This is often summarized in the word election. But this week, if God has made these grand promises, how do they come about? Well, let's just say God the Son makes a purchase. And this is going to be our sermon in the sentence today. Christ has purchased our lasting peace. Christ has purchased our lasting peace. Let us pray, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, You have given us this word. It is God-breathed from You for our training in righteousness. Father, each one of us in this room needs lots of training. So, Father, I pray Your Spirit would apply these words to all of our hearts, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would your spirit be with me as I speak this morning, that I may speak with clarity. And would you be with all of our ears that we may hear. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, we're reading verse, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And thus ends the reading of God's Word this morning. So last week I said that the world is telling a story. Stories shape our lives. Our entire lives are shaped by stories. Paul is doing the same thing. Last week he took us to the very beginning of the story with God's purposes before the foundation of the world. He continues the story today. Now, the trick is to listen to how the world tells its story. We can listen to the world story, listen to music, read books, look at statues. All of them are telling a story. One of the ways the world does that is through Atlas. I'm not referring to the thing in your car that you read when you get lost. I'm referring to the statue. It's of a man carrying the world on his shoulders. That's how the world likes to tell its story. That they have it all figured out that they're carrying the world on their shoulders. But as we read the Bible and as we take an honest look at ourselves, we realize this is a poor statue. If we were to truly make that statue, it would be of a man making a big oopsie face because he dropped the world, because he shattered the world into a million pieces. Our world is a story of a little boy trying to fix his mother's favorite vase with some cheap super glue. The world thinks that we could just glue it all together. That if we wash this world of its sins and its mistakes, of its faults and its failures, 
that there will be unity, that there will be lasting peace. Unfortunately, this will never cleanse our conscience. Our conscience has a much better memory than we give it credit for. It remembers every crack in the vase. Others try to make resolutions, but here's the problem. We lay down our arms, but we still bear hostility in our hearts. Is there an end to strife? Is there an end to the hostility in this world? Where will we find lasting peace? And this is what Paul is trying to tell us this morning. Christ has purchased lasting peace. The fact that Christ has purchased it should tell us something. Think back with me to Adam. Adam's sin was a cosmic tragedy, causing a massive rupture in this world. Stars lost their luster, mountains lost their grandness, and we lost our sense of unity. It's hard today to smell the roses when you're in a war zone, and yet here we are. Go outside, and you will see the disturbance of this world yourself. Every time you put on sunscreen, every time you sweat, which is a lot, it should remind you of the disturbance in this world. When sin entered the world, God said, Cursed be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of its ground all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Thorns and thistles, sweat and toil, these were the original curse words. These words were never uttered before sin entered the world. So let me ask, I have a feeling some of us mowed the yard this weekend. Did you sweat? I washed a truck yesterday. I thought I was going to die. Have any of you have a garden? Have you stopped pulling weeds? We haven't. Every time you wipe the sweat off your face, every time you pull that weed, it should remind you that there is a disturbance in this world. All of creation groans because of this rupture, because of sin, and our labors are not enough to bring unity. They're not enough to bring lasting peace. If you're not convinced by the world of nature and you're feeling brave, watch the news. The, world, the words of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain ring loud and clear in my ears today. Neville Chamberlain got off a Royal Air Force plane in Britain after signing a peace treaty with Adolf Hitler. And he threw his arms in the air and said, We have peace in our generation. A year later, tanks were rolling through Poland and bombs were dropping in England. It was real peace, wasn't it? Human peace has all the hallmarks of beauty, but boy, she is a beast on the inside. Every generation is under the assumption that if we could just sign this bill, proclaim this resolution, do this thing, then there will be lasting peace. Let's be honest. How many times have we gone to bed with a cold shoulder? 
How many stories of abuse have we heard in our lives? Or let's be a little bit on, more on the nose. How many people were shot in Jackson last week? I'll tell you. It was way too many. Every time you hear the sirens come by your house, every time you hear the police and the ambulance, it should remind you there is a great disturbance in this world. And our efforts are not enough to bring lasting peace. But let's be honest, the disturbance of peace isn't felt most keenly in the nature and the news. It's felt most keenly right here in our hearts, isn't it? The rupture of the cosmos runs right through us, and we have no resolution. Politicians and professionals make grand and wonderful statements of some sort of utopia of peace, and yet they do not know our pain. They do not know how many nights our bodies lay still in the bed while our minds are going 90 to nothing. They don't know how many times we distract ourselves for cute videos on Facebook to keep regret and bitterness at bay. Like a man at bad knees, with bad knees, at some point you just have to learn how to cope, even if it's not good for you. I'm reminded of World War I. A historian said the most intense experience a human being can go through is to be in the infantry. He said it's not the fear, but it's the numbing of basic human sympathies that's the biggest problem. That you have to numb your heart to see all sorts of appalling, appalling acts of human brutality. One captain said that he stopped taking his cigarette out of his mouth when he wrote the words deceased on letters and sent them back home to their parents and their spouses. He had lost the ability to show compassion. The fact is, we all know what he's talking about, don't we? I've referenced the shootings in Jackson. How many of us have read updates on COVID? And we see hundreds of thousands of people have died. And what do we do? We go and wash the dishes. We don't shed a tear. We're not bothered. We just go and wash the dishes. How many people call us with problems that are utterly inconceivable? And then we just get on Facebook and play Candy Crush. That's still a thing, isn't it? How many broken relationships do we have? And we see them in town and don't speak to them. And we're simply okay with it. Why? Mankind has a problem mankind cannot solve. Mankind is willing to let sleeping dogs lie and simply deal with the problem of fleas. And if this is not enough, God tells us to walk before Him and be blameless. Sounds impossible, doesn't it? How in the world can I have peace with God when I can't even have peace with myself most nights? How can we deal with ruptures of cosmic proportions if we cannot deal with the rupture running through our hearts? Herein lies the beautiful word, mystery. Mystery. Paul says that a mystery has been revealed. A mystery is not something that did not exist before. A mystery is something that's been there and we didn't see it. 
Most of us here are still with our spouses, so I'm assuming that no one's ever played Clue. But if you've played Clue, you know, the answer's there the entire time. You just don't see it. In the same way, God has made a promise before the foundation of the world, and He published it to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. And to Abraham, He would say, Walk before me and be blameless. But before He said that, He would make this great promise. He said, I will be your God. When He published it again on Mount Sinai, and He gave them the Ten Commandments, He prefaced it with the great promise again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That He has made a promise. He will be our God. He will be our strength. He will give us grace. That He will bring us peace. And every page of the Old Testament are small publications of that promise. But in the fullness of time, God proclaimed this mystery in bold letters and, all, and in all caps. For in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And when He was born, His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And when the heavenly hosts would sing at His birth, Peace on earth and goodwill toward man. The one thing God had been promising all along. And there would be so much goodwill toward men, but there would be no goodwill toward the God-man. In order to keep the promise, Jesus Christ would take all the disturbances of the peace and He would take them upon Himself. Nature would bear her fangs at Him. She would waylay him with winds and waves and he would calm them with a word. The sick would be brought to him and he would take their sickness and illnesses upon himself. The strength of Israel would be weak. The Lord of life would get tired. The bread of heaven would grow hungry. He would take all the ruptures of this world upon himself. When the world shook their fist at him, he brought them words of peace. And yet no one received his testimony. He came to his own and they received him not. Devils taunted him. Families rejected him. Hearers blasphemed him. Friends abandoned him and Judas betrayed him. The first hearer tried to kill him as a baby and the second as a man. The Pharisees falsely accused him. Pilate falsely condemned him. And they spread falsehoods about him ever since. And yet he said not a word. As he was on the cross, the ripping of his clothes, the sour wine he had to drink, the piercing of the nails through his hands, these are all images of the rupture that we all know too well. And yet he took it upon himself. And when God poured out His wrath for all the laws that have been broken, for the broken covenant of works, Jesus gave words of forgiveness. We have redemption through His blood because His death was our punishment. God said in Genesis, you eat the fruit, you're going to die. Paul says the wages of sin is death. Sin, death, 
or the source of the rupture going through this world. And God has promised to deal with it. And He did in Christ. Christ didn't plaster over the problem. Christ didn't kick the can down the road. Christ didn't leave it to the professionals. Christ dealt with it. And it killed Him. And now the redemption that has been that has been given to us at Calvary has been proclaimed in a booming voice. That Christ was executed in a public way on a hill. That His condemnation was written in three languages and His gospel printed in countless others. All the things that God whispered in the Old Testament, He shouts in the New. The way of peace has been purchased and paved by the blood of Christ. He has brought us lasting peace. Now this is all fine and dandy, isn't it? But let's just be honest with ourselves for a second. We look at the world, we look at our own lives, we look at our own hearts, and we have some questions, don't we? Because quite often there's not a lot of peace, is there? If Christ has purchased this peace, if Christ is uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Him, then what does this hold for me? What promise, what hope does this mean for my broken world? Well, there's a couple of things that we can draw from this. First, we can have peace in our conscience. The disruption that we feel, the ultimate disruption, is because of the rupture between God and man. There is an infinite distance between God and us, and Christ has bridged that gap. If you believe in Christ, you have peace with God. But what about those thoughts that keep us up at night? What about when our conscience accuses us? What about when Satan tempts us and tries to take away our peace? What about those little thoughts that keep us up at night? Let me tell you a story. There was this little boy. He built a boat. He got his little hammer and a file, and he sanded it down, and he tarred it, and he lacquered it, and it was a beautiful sailboat. And he took it out to the lake one day, and he set it in the lake, and it floated, and everything was great. And all of a sudden, a big gust of wind came, and before the boy could wade out into the water, the boat was gone. Little boy goes home to his mama. He's a-crying. And she says, well, did it sink? And he said, no, mom, it worked too good. And the boat is gone. Well, the next couple days, he's walking by a second-hand store. And guess what? There's his boat in the window. Well, you know, children... He walks in and he just grabs a boat to walk out. And the stop store keep, store, shopkeeper says, hey, you can't take that. That's my boat. And he says, no, sir, it's my boat. Look, here's some marks of my hammer. Look, my initials are on this boat. This is my boat. And he says, son, I bought this boat. It's my boat. And if you want it, you're going to have to buy it. So the boy went home and he saved his pennies and he worked and he did chores around the house and he got enough money. And he went back and he bought the boat. And as he walked out of the store, you could hear the boy singing, You were once my boat because I made you, but you're twice my boat 
because I bought you. You say, when you take your gun to the pawn shop and you hawk it, and then you come to get it back, you pay for it. What are you doing? You're redeeming your gun. Now, you have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. God chose us when we were sinners. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to redeem you. And he has redeemed you with a steep price. The covenant that we have with God is like proof of purchase. And in blood-drawn letters on the bottom of the covenant is the words, I know my Redeemer lives. That God's love is written in the blood of His Son. So when Satan, the world, and our own conscience accuse us, we can hold up our faith as a proof of purchase. When Satan says that we deserve God's wrath, Christ says, they are twice mine. I have borne them. Give them everlasting love. When Satan says they broke the law, Christ says, I fulfilled it in their place. Let them have freedom, for they are twice mine. When Satan says, take their love, take their comfort, take all of their joy, Christ says, all these things were taken from me so that they may have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, for they are twice mine. Christ made peace through his blood, and he keeps the peace through his blood. And as the needle of a compass trembles until it finds its true north, our hearts will constantly tremble until they rest in Christ. So take your sin, take your strife, take those thoughts that keep you up at night, and take them to Christ, for you are twice His. Find rest in the peace that He has purchased. He stands at the right hand of God with His blood and says, This one is twice mine. Once the rupture between God and man has been healed, everything else falls into place. Satan, he's been overthrown. The world, she has been overcome. All the ruptures in this world find their solution in Christ. He is the main point of history. He is the main point of heaven and earth. Is he our main point? Are we finding rest in him? Do we have faith in Jesus Christ? He is the only place we can have peace. Now as we look out at the world, it's a disheartening thing. But let me ask you the question. If Christ can purchase peace for us, what can Christ do for the world? If He has purchased peace for us, what can He do for the world? Let's be honest. We have family members. Some of us have children. Some of us have neighbors. And we look at them and we say one word. Hopeless. We turn on the TV at night and we say hopeless. But hopeless is a word that does not belong in the Christian vocabulary. Put it next to the word chance and luck. Hopeless does not belong in the Christian vocabulary. Remember where Paul is writing this letter. He has chains, he has a prison cell, and he has hope. We undervalue hope because we've ceased to be amazed. 
It's kind of like when you go to Lowe's. I worked at Lowe's for a long time. You hear the, the background music playing. You don't even pay attention to it. You've heard all the hits before. It's just background noise. And at the same time, the work of Christ has become background noise. We look at the world and we say, well, that's world, how the world has always been. We look at family members and we say, well, that's just how they are. We've stopped expecting to see God at work. But if we peer down the corridors of history for a moment, the work of God is amazing. God used a pagan king to bring his people home. God rose up Alexander the Great, who spread the Greek language across the known world. God rose up the Roman Empire to put out a system of roads. Do you know what that period of history is defined by? Chaos, bloodshed, disruption, disturbance. It was a crazy time to be alive. And yet for God, it was the fullness of time. That that was the time that Jesus Christ was born and came into this world. And when he died, all the pieces were in place that the gospel could be spread all across the world. God had a plan. And as we fast forward to the book of Revelation in chapter 5, God is seated on the throne and he's got a scroll. And in that scroll is God's blueprint, God's plan for the rest of the world. And no one can take it. No man, no government, no professional. Only the lamb who was slain was worthy. And he breaks the seals and he brings it to pass. Where the world sees martyrs, John sees victors. Where the world sees a church defeated, John sees a church triumphant. The same Christ who brought you peace, who brought me peace, will bring peace to this world, saving those whom He has been given and casting those who remain in their sin out of the kingdom of heaven. His purchased peace will be established. We must not resign ourselves to inactivity, but we must expect God to work. He does not roll out in front of us a 21-point corporate vision for the future. Instead, He points us to Christ. Christ is the mystery of the gospel. Christ is the main point of history. We must look at Him and be amazed this morning. When there's upheaval and chaos in our home, when we flip on the news and we are given to despair, it's not the time for despair, my friends. It's the time for prayer. It's a time for us to restore broken relationships in our own corner of the world. It's time for us to be peacekeepers with our peers, squashing strife and gossip wherever it may be found. It's time for us to pursue peace in our corner of the world. On Old Port Gibson, on Newman, on Bill Strong, even in Vicksburg. It's time for us to pursue peace in the little world that God has placed us because Christ has purchased peace for the entire world. Let us live expecting that Christ will bring peace. In closing, the world's telling a story. The world would like to think, like you to think that it has everything all together. But really, the story of the world is of a vase 
shattered on the floor. Many of us look at the vase and we just keep walking. But Jesus practices something different. If I can compare it, it's similar to a Japanese practice called Kintsugi. What it is, is in this practice they would take a broken vase and instead of super gluing it together and hiding all the cracks, they would get tree sap and mix it with gold dust and put the cracks together with this gold dust. They didn't hide the cracks. They showed the cracks. The cracks showed the history of this broken piece of pottery, giving it a new life and a new story. Kintsugi takes this old broken piece and makes it look more beautiful than before. Many of us would love to go back to the garden, but I tell you, the life that God is preparing in Christ is far greater, much more beautiful. Each of us here suffer from a broken world and broken relationships and a broken heart. And yet Christ is putting all of those pieces back together. Not with silver and gold, but with His priceless blood. The way to peace this morning is to not mend them yourselves. The way to peace is to look to Christ. Only His blood can mend our shattered consciences and this shattered world. He has purchased peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, even for a moment today, you have peeled back the veils of, veils of time to let us see the great plan that you have set forth in Jesus Christ. And often, like men building a building, they see the plans and then they look at the construction and it looks very different. But Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would keep the plan before us, and that our words and our actions and our lives would be according to your great and wonderful plan. Heavenly Father, would we find peace for our hearts and our relationships and our world in Christ Jesus this day. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one last hymn. It's on page 460. Amazing Grace.